Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Erin McKeown is a creative woman and then some. A musician, singer, writer, and producer, Erin has performed here, there, and everywhere, and her touring schedule would make your head spin. Known as an artist who dispenses with stylistic boundaries, she's released nine studio albums. Her music has appeared on numerous television shows and commercials, and she's been featured on the podcast Welcome to Night Vale. Erin has also been on the receiving end of some pretty impressive reviews. Let me share three of them. From the Boston Globe, her playing is so muscular, her arrangements so well-conceived that she succeeds brilliantly. As with all truly great guitarists, the wonder is less in her chops than her choices. The Sunday Times in the U.K., in several distinctive ways, voice, dynamic subtlety, and sheer songwriting ability, Erin McKeown is in a class of her own. The New York Times. Her clear mezzo-soprano sounds perpetually optimistic, and so do the syncopated electric guitar parts she picks and plucks through the sparsely arranged but beautifully realized songs. A degree in ethnomusicology and African undercurrents separate her from more rhythmically earthbound folk rockers. Actually, Erin began studying ornithology at Brown University, but later switched to ethnomusicology. While a student, she spent three years as an artist-in-residence at Providence, Rhode Island's Revolutionary Community Arts Organization, AS220. She was a 2011-2012 fellow at Harvard's Beekman Center for Internet and Society. Her commitment to social justice is an important part of who she is. Erin has worked with a range of nonprofits, focusing on social and media justice and immigration reform. So let's meet this passionate, committed, talented woman. Erin, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Sandy. Great to be here. How does one move from studying birds to getting a degree in ethnomusicology? I think it's not a move at anything altogether. It's actually both things existed before I went to college and both things existed after. And I just happened to get a degree in one of the things I was interested in. So you married your love for nature with your love for music? Yeah, I grew up um, thinking I was going to be a scientist. Grew up going to Nerd Kid Summer Science Camp. (laughs) And at that Nerd Kid Summer Science Camp where we did experiments um, where we, you know, learned about different types of mushrooms and creeks and rivers, et cetera, et cetera. I also learned how to play guitar. And every night, you know, our counselors would pull out the songbook and we would sing for an hour. And um, I wanted to do that just as much as I wanted to, you know, capture mice and feed them to snakes. <laughs> and um, those things were always tied for me. I mean, you know, both things are about storytelling. That's how I think about it. That's how I look at the natural world as a story that we can tell. And that's how I look at my music is uh, a different story I can tell. Actually, that's a kind of advanced thinking for a child. I think it's a lot of therapy as like an older person who's put it all together. But um, that's what was happening when I was a kid. Talk about music being a part of your life at a young age, encouraged by your family, your parents. It was encouraged by my parents in a a very interesting way. Um, I grew up in a town called Fredericksburg, in an upper middle class home. Both of my parents come from large working class immigrant families. And so going to going to college was very important. And, and, you know, moving above your class station was very important to them. Um, And they thought a middle class kid Uh, should take music lessons, should play an instrument in an effort to be well-rounded. So that's why music was a part of my my early life, Um, was really as like another activity to make me a well-rounded kid. Um, But I wasn't, turns out I I didn't want to be 
a gymnast or I didn't want to be a tennis player, which were other things that I did to be Mm well-rounded. Music ended up hooking me in a way that became my vocation. You can appreciate music and it can make you a well-rounded individual, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have talent. I suppose that's true. I mean, I'm one of those people that believe that anyone can make music, that anyone should feel like they're able to make music. You know, it always disappoints me and makes me sad when I hear folks say like, oh, I can't sing. I have no talent. Um, I think those things are, are different. I invite you to take a ride in the car with me one day when I'm <laughs> singing along with some Motown tunes and you may change your tune. <laughs> well, that's well, well, you know, that that speaks to something, though. It's like I think if anything, I learned from, you know, having a degree in ethnomusicology, whatever, you know, officialness that gives me is that for me, music is about how it's used. It's not about the quality of it. It's not about uh, the talent of the person that's that's making it. It's about how is it used? What does it give us? And for you, singing along with Motown in the car, what does that give you? I mean, that's a serious question. What do you get from that? I transcend and I get a lot of joy from singing along with the Four Tops or the Temptations or Martha and the Vandellas. It makes me happy. That music makes me happy. Therefore, it has use and therefore your singing has use. And um, that's that's how I think of things. You know, there's certain songs that I've written over my career that I wrote for myself, but then there's other songs that I wrote specifically for other people or for other uses. Um, and, and honestly, like nothing gives me more pleasure than when someone tells me that a song that I made is useful to them. I want to just focus a little bit on ethnomusicology because I don't know a lot about that. So explain what that curriculum is. Ethnomusicology is is a combination of a lot of different things. Um, There's an aspect of it that's sociology. There's an aspect of it that's anthropology. I mean, it certainly has a musicology, functional, literate part of it to be able to understand, you know, um, theory-wise what's happening. But it's really, again, more about about use and culture and ways that music fits into people's lives. Most ethnomusicology that I encounter, I mean, I, I never heard of it before I went to college, to be totally honest. And, um, you know, you mentioned I went to Brown and, you know, at the risk of, you know, angering my alma mater. But when I was at Brown, they had a terrible advising system. No one, no one was really helping me decide what to do. And um, so for the first two years, and there's no required classes, which I actually think is great. So the first two years, I took German, I took math, I took a bunch of music classes, Uh I took a biology class and decided I didn't want to be an ornithologist. And at the end of two years, they say, what would you like to be your major? And ethnomusicology was simply the thing that I was closest to. I had of my own design, ended up taking classes that would get me closest to an ethnomusicology degree. So that's where it came from. But a traditional ethnomusic degree Often people are looking at cultures far from their own. So you get folks that are looking at music of a certain group of people in the Middle East or, um, you know, I don't know, Scandinavian bark flute or something. Um, You get a lot of good, valid work in ethnomusicology about how to be the other in a culture and still be able to observe it. And and all that stuff is really important. Um, But I was also interested in applying ethnomusicology as a process to the things that were closest to me. So the music that I was making and the music that was happening in, in my own community and, um, and in my country. And so anyway, my degree, you know, again, to the extent that it's official, mm-hmm. um, I specialized in early American entertainment, uh, blackface minstrelsy and early vaudeville. That's really interesting. Cause I was going to ask you, what was the music you were making? Well, in high school, 
the music that I was making was very much a product of someone who was growing up in a small town in Virginia. I mean, there was a lot of Southern rock and a lot of like electric guitar music. And, um, and I just, I love that music. I still love that music. So we're talking about Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner, um, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, you know, let's note that those are, you know, music's made by men. And then when I was, you know, later in high school, um, and also through the influence of summer camp, I started to hear people like Ani DeFranco, Michelle Schacht, Indigo Girls. And, um, those sort of cracked my world wide open and my music, you know, started to change and bring in those influences. And then I went to college and I met kids who'd grown up in households that listened to music, kids who'd grown up in households where they were listening to jazz. I'd never heard jazz before I went to college and especially old time jazz. And um, I would say that during the years that I was in college, that was the music I was most interested in, these female singer songwriters and jazz. And um, that's, you know, as an artist, that's a funny time uh, in your life where you are not very good at imitating something. Mm. You don't know what your own music sounds like. And so you're just in the in the mush of trying to figure out anything that you can uh, reliably reproduce. What came first, picking up the guitar or writing your own songs? Well, it actually goes back to uh, when I was maybe three or four years old, I started taking piano lessons again, because that's what like a middle class kid would do. Mm -hmm. To be honest, like I've never shown any aptitude at the piano. I was, you know, a okay piano student and, you know, often sometimes sullen about it. As early as I can remember, I was always writing things, um, poems and short stories. I remember there was like a, a poetry contest, a yearly poetry contest um, and a yearly program where you, you know, had to make a book, write a story, make a book, put it on paper, figure out how to bind it, write, draw a cover. And I remember doing that every year, um, either a poem or a book from as long as I could as I could remember, and I just loved it, and it seemed like the thing to do. It was not until I picked up a guitar at age, I think I was 12 when I got my guitar, that music opened up for me as an expression that these poems and short stories that I had been writing all of a sudden had a different outlet. The minute I started playing guitar is the minute I started writing songs. Um, but the way had been prepared by, you know, years of piano lessons and my own love of writing things. So talk to me about how personal your music is to you. Do you bear your soul in your songs? And obviously, I'm thinking in my head about your newest EP, Mirrors Break Back. Well, it's funny because if you notice the question that you asked me, I actually forgot to tell you about singing. Oh, yeah. So let's <laughs> talk is, about singing. Which has sort of <laughs> been my experience as a, as a musician. My actual singing voice, um, which in some ways is the most intimate and the most vulnerable thing that you can do as a musician, um, is open your mouth and sing, like is a third or fourth thought for me um, behind other things I do. And um, that's probably because it is so intimate. I, I think that you'll ask any certainly professional musician, but even, you know, someone who's who's writing songs, but maybe not making their living from it, or even playing music and not making their living from it, all of it's vulnerable. Um, whether you're singing a song that Paul Simon wrote that is about nothing you can relate to, it's sure. so vulnerable sure. and soul-bearing to process that music through yourself and let other people see you do it. The same thing with writing. At the same time as I may be writing about something that's very personal, um, I may have found some other way to distance it, maybe through making the pronouns in the song not my pronouns or um, ostensibly telling someone else's story that's not mine. So there's always this existence at the same time of distancing and intimacy. I've tried to 
undo that in my most recent records, um, which, you know, Mirrors Break Back, the one that you mentioned. Uh, it has a, a twin twin sister called According to Us that came out last year. And the two records together um, make up sort of the, the dark and light side of a of a, a process of trying to get rid of some of that artifice and um, singing as clearly as possible and performing as clearly as possible with who I am in this particular moment. Where were you then versus where you are now? Well, one thing that has stayed the same is that I've always been interested in rhythm, always from the beginning of even when I only knew how to play the acoustic guitar um, and I only knew how to strum in a folk manner. I was still interested in rhythm. That hasn't changed, but the tools that I have to explore that have changed. Um, As the years have gone on, I've gotten more fluent at other instruments um, and it and using computers and electronic music as well. So my music has has changed in the tools that are available to it and the sound. Um, I have a restless mind. I'm always ex- interested in exploring um, different genres of music, different mm-hmm. sounds of music. I would say, you know, something, something else that's changed is, um, yeah, I don't know, a commitment to simplicity. I'm more and more interested in, um, you know, one of those kind, kind quotes that you read at the beginning was talking about things being clear and things being sparsely arranged. And, um, that's, that's something I'm moving more and more towards is, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to call it minimalism, but I am looking to say the most with the least. And I think each record that I've done has gotten a little clearer. Right. So less is more. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you want me to get from some of your songs? That's an interesting question to me. That's something I'm thinking about a lot lately. Um, you know, I, I, I'm talking to you today from my studio and I have a big whiteboard that um, I've had for almost 20 years. So every single one of my records has at some point or another been written out on that whiteboard or some piece of it has been on there. And I, I've kept the same one. And it's, you know, as you can imagine, dirty and crusty and has layers <laughs> of stuff on it. Right. Um, but currently written on that whiteboard is the story is for the teller, not the audience. That's just something I've been thinking about through other things that I've been listening to recently. And it's just a question like, like, who is the song for that I'm writing? Um, mm. Again, I, I think it's primarily for me. I think for me, I'm trying to work some stuff out and the story is for me. However, if I truly believe that I would never put out records, I would never go play shows. There's some drive in me that wants to know what's happening for you, Sandy the listener. Um, what are you getting out of it? And I certainly want to hear that. So, you know, at the risk of summing up something that is infinite, um, maybe the story, you know, the song is initially for me, but it very much matters to me what you get out of it. So you obviously have made your songs personal, but then again, there must be this connection because of your involvement in social and media justice and immigration reform. It may not be only about what might have caused you personal pain, but it's also music on a grander scale. I think that's right. I'm, my commitment to social justice and to, you know, the, the two specific issues that you that you mentioned, media justice reform and immigration reform, um, those are things that I was looking for ways to be useful you know, for many years. I mean, huh. I did not grow up in uh, an activist household. I did not grow up in an environment that was um, explicitly committed to activism or social justice. I'm not saying that I grew up with cruel people, but I'm, <laughs> I, I did not grow up in an environment where there was an emphasis on um, service or thinking about uh, those who have less than us or finding injustice and, and doing something about it. Um, 
that's just a, a personal hunger of mine. And for years I was uh, coming closer and closer to finding the right language. I mean, I think it's important to be said that uh, not everyone grows up knowing how to be an activist. It, it's a skill that you learn just the same way that I learned how to play the piano. So it took me a while to, to meet the right people and be in the right environment to learn how to to do that work. And um, once I started to do that, it just became imperative to me that my music be part of that. It seemed ridiculous that I would be someone who was interested in social justice and not use my music for that. And sometimes that's within the song. I mean, I have a whole record. Uh, this is maybe what you're thinking, but I have a whole record called Manifesto that came out about four years ago that's explicitly in the songs, in the lyrics, in the construction of the whole album that's explicitly about citizenship, participation, activism. But then I also have songs where intrinsically in the song you may not find the issue, but then it's the environment that I play the song in and it's my physical body as an activist that's playing the song and then that offers something. As artists, we have we're in a tricky place of, of having an audience and having something to share and trying to figure out the best way for us to share something, the best way for people to receive something. And ultimately, the bottom line, again, coming back to this theme, maybe this is the theme of our interview, is is how to be useful. How can we make music useful for us? Do you think your activism was honed in these three years as an artist in residence at Providence, Rhode Island's Revolutionary Community Arts Organization, this AS220, which I would like you to talk about? Oh, AS220 changed my life. It was a great privilege to go to a school like Brown, and I met uh, a good many people there. I had some wonderful professors, but I feel like the real alma mater of my life is AS220. AS220 is 30 years old. It's been in downtown Providence for 30 years, and it's grown from a group of artists who were meeting above the Performing Arts Center to multi-building, amazing organization that offers um, community classes, performance space, and and housing for artists of different kinds and different kinds of housing. And, and that's what I did. I lived in a cooperative loft with artists for three years. I feel like that's where I learned how to be someone who's creative and responsible to the world at the same time. What I learned at AS220 was how to not go crazy when you have an unstructured day, how to figure out as a freelancer how to pay your rent, how to feed yourself at correct times of the day, how to be open to someone else's ideas and collaborate. My favorite thing about living at ASU 20, and, and I think, again, fundamental to who I became as an artist, was I would get up in the morning and I'd go down to the cafe that was part of the complex. I'd get a cup of coffee and I would just sit down at a table and one of my housemates or one of the artists who worked in the building might come by and they would say, today I'm doing a photo shoot. I need an extra hand. Would you come? And I would say yes. Mm -hmm. And then I would end up, you know, helping someone build a puppet that day. Or I would end up singing background tracks on someone's techno music. Just the sheer breadth of what artists were doing and that I could participate and that I could be spontaneous and um, learn from all these people around me. I feel like that fundamentally taught me how to be an artist. That had to be such an eclectic experience. Yeah, which, you know, if you haven't figured out by now, it's like suits me really great. It's like <laughs> a lot of things I like. I like a lot of different kind of music. I like to do a lot of different things with my life. And um, the more, the merrier for me, the more stimulation I get from different places, like the more I want to process it into my own art. You're internationally recognized. What's that been like for you? 
It's the coolest feeling. I have to tell you, um, I recently did a tour with uh, the podcast Welcome to Night Vale. And uh, it's a, a serialized fictional podcast about a, a strange desert town. And um, there's wonderful, really creative folks, really popular. They play beautiful theaters across the country and across the world. And I go on tour with them to play music. I get to play my music for a little bit at the beginning of the night. And we all travel together. And those guys are um, actors primarily. They're not traveling musicians. And um, they're relatively young in terms of the podcast has been touring for about four years. And, um, you know, sometimes I feel like the old lady in the back of the van, but I've, I've been every place that they've been. And I've been there many times. And it's actually a joy. It's actually a joy. We played in Kansas City recently. And we played at a theater that I had been to earlier with the artist Ani DeFranco, who had been, you know, a great model and a great mentor of mine. And I had been on tour with her when I was still in college, actually. I remember standing on that stage just recently and just being like, oh, it's, it's so great. What a gift that I can be familiar as I am with Kansas City for 50, 60 cities around the world that I've been to enough times to know my way around, know where I want to eat before the show, get to come back to these beautiful venues. And at the end of the night, I went and checked my Instagram and someone who was at the Night Vale show had also been at the show that I played with Ani DeFranco. And they put up a picture of both the tickets next to each other. And it was one day difference, 16 years and one day difference between the time that I had, you know, played in Kansas City with Ani. And and in between, I've been to Kansas City many times. But that's what it feels like mm. to have toured for so many years in so many places. It's a, it's a sense of familiarity and belonging and joy to keep coming back to these different places and to feel at home in so many different worlds. Was it a tough road to hoe to get yourself out there professionally, to earn a living? Not back then so much, but did, did, did you have a mentor? Were you, were you doing this all by yourself? How did you put a band together? How'd you do it? Well, I definitely have had um, experienced artists who have helped me in various ways and, and experienced booking agents and managers and, and all the parts of the music industry, folks who have been very kind sharing their experience. And, and I try to do the same. I mean, in the broadcast community, I'm sure there's folks that have just been, you've known them for a bunch of years, like they pass on a tidbit, you learned something from them. I'm sure you had mentors. It's the same thing for me. I would say that early in my career, I was not aware that that's what was happening. I was not aware that uh, by going on tour that I was learning how to be an artist in the same way that, you know, what was happening for me at AS220. I wasn't aware that I was watching how an artist put together a band or, uh, you know, what did they rehearse at soundcheck versus what did they play in the show? I wasn't aware that I was learning all that, but that's exactly what was happening for me. I choose to perform under my own name, which is a whole other discussion. So in some ways I have been doing it by myself and in other ways I've been part of this community for a long time. What do you mean it's a whole other discussion? That's a bit of a tease. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because where I grew up, again, like the music that was happening uh, when I was growing up that I was, you know, interested in, again, was like, you know, a lot of like bands and guitar rock and Southern rock. And um, there was just like bands that had a band name. They may have had the songwriter, but they had they had a band name. You know, you, you I didn't grow up thinking I'd be a singer songwriter. I grew up thinking that I would be the Almond Brothers. Do you know what I'm saying? Towards the end of high school, I started hearing about these artists who there was no distance between their name and their songwriting. Michelle Shocked, for example, you know, she wrote the songs. Her name was on her name was on the marquee. I feel like if I had gone to college 
in some place with a different scene than New England. You know, one of the places I wanted to go to college was University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Why? Because most of my camp counselors went there. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's the kind of decision making that Uh you're doing when you're 18 years old. If I had gone to UNC Chapel Hill, I would have probably met three other people who liked the same music as me. We would have come up with a band name and that's what we would have done because that was the scene down there. But instead I went to New England and I intersected with like a singer, singer, songwriter, coffee house scene. And so I play under my own name, which the very first thing that you did today when we got on to talk to each other was ask me how to pronounce my name. That is a very fair question. I understand where that comes from. And I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me my whole career. Spelled wrong, pronounced wrong, said wrong. Mm-hmm. And I could have been a band called, you know, Pilot One or something. Sure, you know? sure, sure. That was just the decision I made, and I think there's pros and cons to it. I want you to talk to me about Mirror's Break Back, because we're going to play some of your music, particularly that, as we end the show. I need you to explain the significance of the title, and I had read that it was a meditation on self-hate. Yeah, yeah. Something I've been thinking about, especially as like a woman approaching 40, is um, my relationship to my body image. The record that I had made before, according to us, was all about how I had found a sense of identity. I had found like a flag that I wanted to wave, how I was like fantastically one person, whatever room that I was in. And the flip side of it was that like as this empowered, thoughtful, conscious person, I could still look in a mirror and think that I was to this or to that. And that's just its heartbreaking to me. <laughs> I know I'm not the only person that feels that way. And so that feeling of like, I can have all this success, I can be so sure of who I am, and I can pass by a mirror and feel like shit about myself. I called that feeling mirrors break back. They break you. They show you something that you don't want to see. And it breaks you. And um, I decided to sink into that, to explore that, to say out loud the things that crossed my mind when um, I walked past a mirror and hated myself. And some of that is physical and some of that's emotional. And um, uh, like I said, I I know I'm not the only person, especially someone who presents as female in this world and was socialized as female in this world to struggle with that. So you have a song on Mirrors Break Back that says, um, you know, I'm a little loser. I'm a little less than never elegant. You know, those are literally things that that me as a accomplished person at this point in my life with that wonderful introduction you gave me and those beautiful quotes that people have said about me um, can still think those things about myself. That is universal. And that that just resonated with me. You and I, again, yeah, we're different ages, but we're also socialized in this system as, again, like as female presenting people. And um, there are some folks, you know, younger than us who might have an opportunity to not attach so much onto it. And um, I tend to be someone who's a little skeptical of like, I believe the children are the future kind of things. But I, I do actually feel like um, there is an opportunity to get to to get to people younger, and at least try to undo some of this stuff. So let me ask you, Aaron, are you in a good place? I'm in a great place. <laughs> in fact, I'm, I'm there right now. I'm in a really great house uh, in Western Massachusetts, and I'm having an intelligent conversation with uh, an awesome creative person. That makes me feel terrific. But I just mean beyond 
today. Yeah, I think it's wonderful to me. For me, I'm in a good place because my life has room for for all the different things that happen in life, right? So when I say life is wonderful to me, that means that I have room to feel bad about myself. I have room to feel great about myself. Um, I have room for uh, tragedy in my life. I have room for um, dreams. I have room for doubt. I have room for curiosity. That's why I say I'm in a great place right now. We're going to end this show with Mirror's Break Back, and I just want to gush and say to you, Aaron McEwen, I have so enjoyed our conversation. That is one of the greatest joys about having this program. I meet the most terrific, fabulous females, and I could just be doing this till the cows come home. God, I hope they don't. Aaron Thank you so much for joining me today and much continued success. Well, that's awesome, Sandy. I hope we get to meet in person sometime soon. That would be dynamite. I'm Sandy Klein. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. And we're ending this conversation with Erin's newest EP, Mirrors Break Back. So fragile, a delicate flame that burns out. So fleeting in nature, love for myself. One look, I'm full of cracks. Mirrors break back. Back and forth faith and doubt the stage in the shadow the spring and the fall the constant swing of it all gets me down down still that merry-go-round finds a way to come round so i can get up again amen tell me do you feel the same way when mirrors break back oh break back i never had a model i only had a mother who compared ourselves to others always another and another I was taught to think the bitch takes up space. The witch gets burned at the stake. This history deceives me, leaves me vulnerable to attack. Uh huh. Mirrors break back. Ooh, break back. True. Sometimes I do think I am beautiful with strong hands and wrists, pulling on strings, raising fists. And when I punch the glass, shatter that ceiling, feels like we can all break through. But then you turn around.